You're listening to Brains On, where we're serious about being curious. Brains On is supported in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. Hey, honey, I'm home. Oh, dinner and flowers? Hi, goldfish darling. Do you like it? Who doesn't like a nice romantic dinner with their handsome clam husband? How thoughtful. Goldfish, you forgot. No, I didn't forget. How could I forget my hubby's birthday? Look, clam, I got you this file folder. It's Manila, your favorite color. It's not my birthday. Psych. I know it's not your birthday. <laughs> that was a joke. Um, what kind of a lame gift is a file folder anyway? <laughs> well? Happy Valentine's Day. It's our anniversary. Oh, right. Um, How could you? It's our first anniversary as an aquatic married couple. Does that ring on your fin mean nothing? Wait, um, I'm just a fish. We have terrible memories. We can only remember things for like three seconds. It's just a fact. It's not my fault. Wait, is that true? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's totally true. It's it's science. Us fish, we don't remember anything. Like, where am I right now? I don't even remember. Who are you? Who's that handsome hunk of a clam holding those flowers? Are those for me? Oh, I can't stay mad at you, Goldie. Those cute gills those stunning scales, your beautiful black unblinking eyes. Look, let's just enjoy this dinner together. I'll go get the sparkling white brine. Shelly, mark this date on my calendar next year. Anniversary with clam. Do not forget. Also, Shelly, when is clam's birthday? This is Brains On. Welcome to part three of our series, Prove It, How to Find the Facts. Check out parts one and two if you haven't. Let's do it. How can we deflate what we declare? Theorize and test for errors. What if what we say feels right? Okay, sure, but let's just shine a light. We can prove it. We can prove it. Let's check the facts and prove it. We can prove it. We can prove it. Let's check the facts and prove it. Prove it! This is Brains On from American Public Media. I'm your host, Molly Bloom, and my co-host for this series is 12-year-old Katie from Fairfield, Connecticut. Hi, Katie. Hi. In this series, we've been talking about different ways we humans find facts about our world. Last time, we tackled science, and today we're talking journalism, the news business, mass media, the press. We'll be explaining more about the history of newspapers, and we'll ask some journalists about their jobs. Plus, you know, the mystery sound, the moment of um, all the good stuff. Katie, you love reading news. Uh, Do you want to be a journalist when you grow up? Yes, I love journalism, and... I think it would be a really cool job. I get to research stuff and all that. So what are your favorite types of news stories to read as a news consumer? I love reading international stories because I love to know what's going on about the in the world. Okay, so fish. Do they have a three-second memory? That's what our friend Joe was curious about. Hi, Brains On. 
I'm Joe, and I'm 12. I'm from Reno, Nevada. Do fish have brains? And I heard they have a three-second memory. Is that true? Bye. Linda Q, fact checker and journalist at the New York Times, is back to help us see if this is true. Welcome back, Linda. Thanks. So, is it true that fish only have a three-second memory? That's not true. Um, And there's actually a lot of research that shows that fish have way longer memories. Sometimes they can last for months. So I'll give you a couple examples. There was a study in 1994 uh, where scientists trained goldfish to pull a lever one hour every day in order to get food over several weeks. When the lever stopped giving out food, the fish still remembered to pull the lever and what time to pull that lever. Uh, There was another study in 2016. Scientists uh, used an archer fish, which is a fish that can shoot water, um, and they trained this archer fish to shoot water at a picture of a human face, and they gave the the fish pellets of food afterwards as a reward. Um, A couple of days later, scientists then introduced pictures of different human faces, but the fish could actually remember which human it was supposed to shoot water at. That's a really funny experiment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds awesome. Well, there you go. So they do have longer memories than just three seconds. Yeah. Wait a minute. How does a goldfish pull a lever? (laughs) So from the videos I watch, it looks like they just kind of like bump into it. (laughs) (laughs) So they more like bump a lever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So for this fact, how did you check this one out? So again, I started with a Google search um, and it led me to a couple of different news articles about scientific research that had been conducted. And then I went ahead and read the articles myself. How, how long does it usually take you to check a fact? That depends. Um, some things are pretty easy to fact check so I can get it in a couple of seconds. Other times it can take, you know, hours or even days. One of my longest fact checks, it took me about a week and a half to do because I had to go to the Library of Congress and pull archival material and convert it from microfilm to PDFs and, you know, just look at everything there. So that took very long. Well, thank you so much for checking this fact for us today. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Just got a news alert on my phone. What does it say? Breaking news. Sandin is coming to blow minds with history? That can't be right. Oh, it is right, Molly. Sandin, where did you come from? I was just hiding in the trash can, but that's not important. What is important is history, and I'm here to give you some. Wow, that trash smell is really strong. Like spoiled cottage cheese or rotten pumpkin. It's all worth it for dramatic entrance. Look, I'm here to tell you how journalism as we know it came to be. So, in our first episode in the series, I told you how the printing press brought facts and information to a wide audience. Right, and you said publishing small papers or pamphlets became really popular around the Revolutionary War in America. Exactly. So, that's where I'll pick up this story. It's 1775, and the colonists are stoked. Hear ye, hear ye! We beat the British! The war is over! We are free to start our own nation! Anyone know exactly how to start a nation? Is there like a manual or like a cheat sheet or something? I'm way out of my depth here. They wake up in the morning, they've they've defeated the biggest empire in the world. Okay, now what do we do? That's Andy Tucker, a journalism professor at Columbia University. We've got this country we're supposed to organize. How are we going to do that? Andy says... At the time, there were two major political parties, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. 
both had a grand vision for how to raise this baby democracy, so cute little baby democracy. Excuse me. The problem was, their visions were pretty different. Fresh news here. We Federalists came up with the best way to form a new government. Read all about it in our paper. Breaking story! We Democratic Republicans invented an even better way of doing things. Way better than the Federalists. Buy our paper for the story. Oh yeah? Well, breaking our news. We Federalists saw the Democratic Republicans' plan, and it's a flaming pile of hogwash. What? Update to our last edition. Federalist ideas found to be pure whale snot, and their editor is a festering pustule. Oh ho ho, says in our paper, your editor is a pea-brained horsehoof licker. Your remarks are completely useless. They would call each other names, logger-headed booby and adult cat's paw. This is editors talking about each other. But you bought the newspaper, you supported the newspaper that supported your point of view. So, not exactly the objective journalism we strive for today. I'll say. So when did things begin to change? It took some time. Let's fast forward a few decades to the 1830s. Cities like New York are becoming these massive communities. There are no cars. People use horses to get around. It's dirty and smelly, but also bustling and full of newcomers from Europe and rural America who want to know all about their new home. So some publishers start printing papers all about life in the city. They're cheap, often just a penny. And Andy Tucker says these papers cover a lot more than just politics. And it gives you all this cool stuff to know about your city. It tells you about the murders and the scandals. It tells you about the woman who was, who was arrested because she was smoking a cigar in the street. It tells you about... Um, Down in the battery, there was a a tree and it had 60 wild pigeons in it. And people are thrilled about this because for the first time, newspapers are telling ordinary people facts about their daily lives at a price that ordinary people can buy it. Wait, Sandin, did she say a tree had 60 pigeons in it? Yep. I'd read about that. Yeah, me too. I know, right? That was the point. These papers made money by luring in as many readers as possible. And one reporter who was great at getting readers and telling really important stories was a woman named Nellie Bly. She had just moved to New York from Pittsburgh, where she got fed up with covering flower shows and new raincoats and things like that. That's Brooke Kroger, a professor of journalism at New York University and author of the book Nellie Bly, Daredevil, Reporter, Feminist. She really wanted to cover real news, things that made a difference. I mean, flowers and coats are fine, but there's injustice in the world and someone needs to shed a light on it. I guess that someone is me, Nellie Bly. Nellie uncovered poor conditions for women in prisons. She described poverty in Mexico and reported on crooked politicians. Early in her career, she heard a rumor that patients in a New York mental hospital were being mistreated. I wanted to see it for myself, but the only way to get in was to get locked in. So I pretended to be mentally ill. She practiced in a mirror. She moved into a women's boarding house downtown, and she began to act very, very strangely. It wasn't easy, but I was determined. I barely spoke to anyone. I pretended to forget where I was from. I even refused to sleep. I sat up all night with a dead look in my eyes. Everyone was spooked. When she got to the boarding house, she just kept saying, I need my trunks, I need my trunks, I need my trunks. 
you know, her big suitcases. I need my trunks. I need my trunks. And people just thought she was, you know, quite loony. It worked. She was locked up and she saw all kinds of abuse in the hospital. Living conditions there were terrible, too. Her newspaper was in on this plan, so they eventually bailed her out. And when people read her report, they were outraged. Politicians vowed to improve the mental hospital. There was actually a real result, the sort of things we like to see newspapers accomplish. So that was a pretty big deal. It's all part of the job. Now, aren't you glad I wasn't stuck covering fashion shows and theater? Nellie was part of a growing tradition of journalists helping those in need. But soon the news business would suffer an embarrassing scandal that would reshape the world of journalism. I'll be back with that in a minute. Wow, it's fun to binge all this history. Yeah, hey, you know what rhymes with history? What? Mystery. As in it's time for the... Here it is. Okay, Katie, any guesses what that sound might be? I think it sounds like a printo shooting out paper. Excellent guess. We're going to be back a little later in the show with the answer. Do you have a mystery sound to share? Or a question only brains on can answer? Or maybe you want to share a drawing of Clam and Goldfish's romantic anniversary dinner? We'd love that. So get in touch. Just go to brainson.org slash contact. Be like Julia, who sent us this question. How come we have a tailbone but no tail? Good question. So good, in fact, that we'll be answering it in a moment of um. Stick around for that and to hear the latest group of curious kids to join the elite ranks of the Brains Honor Roll. These are the fans that send us ideas, questions, and drawings. And also make our day by being the best. And if you love Brains On, please help keep the show going. We're a nonprofit supported by our friends. What's a friend? I made it up. It means a friend who is also a fan. That's how we think of our listeners. Friends. I like it. So please help us out with a donation of any amount, large or small. For a show as scrappy as ours, it really makes a difference. Just go to brainson.org slash donate. Thanks. Thanks, friends. This is Brains On. I'm Molly. And I'm Katie. And today we're all about journalism. Sandon, you were telling us about the newspapers in the U.S. during the late 1800s. Yeah, as I mentioned, some of those papers were heading for an epic fail. What do you mean? Well, you know, these papers needed a lot of readers to make money. So to keep people buying, some of them started stretching the truth. They did something called sensationalizing the news. That means to take a story and make it way more exciting or scandalous than it actually is to get readers. Extra, extra. Horse goes missing in New York. Buy the paper. Read all about it. Anybody? Wait, did I say goes missing? I mean, horse snapped. Horses horse snapped in New York. Any of your horses could be next. Horse snapped? Oh, dear. I'll take a copy of that paper. I need to read up so I can protect my horse. Oh, me too. Here's my money. Take my money. Ka-ching! Yes! Now, not all newspapers did this, but towards the end of the 1800s, it got really bad in New York. Sometimes these papers sensationalized crimes or scandals. And in 1898, they sensationalized something called the Spanish-American War. 
Here's journalism historian Andy Tucker again. This is a very small-scale war in which the Cubans are revolting against the Spanish who have controlled the island. The United States gets involved to help. It's a very fast war. The United States has, has enormous firepower, defeats the, Sp- the Spanish very quickly. But the sensational newspapers in New York, they see this as a great story. It's going to get people to buy their newspapers. Well, they they made up stuff. They lied. It was really sensational. There's a backlash against this. And many people are starting to think we can do a lot better. One of those people was Joseph Pulitzer. He ran a paper called The New York World. He felt bad about what his paper published during the war. So he decided to help change things. He founded a school that opened in 1912, the Columbia Journalism School. That's where Andy Tucker teaches. Just a few years earlier, the Missouri School of Journalism opened up. These were some of the first formal schools to teach reporters how to be fair and ethical. So the beginning of the 20th century, there is a real movement toward reforming a lot of what was awful about journalism. That's where you see the beginnings of the idea that journalists should be responsible, should strive for fair play, should be impartial, should try not to take sides and not to be opinionated. This is a new value. We now criticize all sorts of journalism for not being objective, but that would not have been an issue until just about 100 years ago. That idea took hold in the beginning of the 20th century in response to the idea that if you're going to give people information that they can use to make their own decisions, you should try to give them the whole story. Obviously, a lot changes over the next 100 years. People put out news on the radio and eventually on TV. Newspapers pop up all over the globe. And reporters print stories that change the course of history. Because it turns out, fair and fact-based news is a powerful tool. When people know the news and trust what they're hearing, they can make good decisions. And that's what it's all about. Thanks, Andon. Yeah, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Now, uh... (laughs) I think I need to go take a shower. This this trash smell just is not going away. Ugh. Yeah, that's a good idea. Of course, news is always changing. And over the last 20 years, there were some major changes thanks to the Internet. We'll talk more about that in our next episode. Plus, we'll give you tips on how to protect yourself from bad info. I'm Hildy Leeshack. I'm 11 years old, and I'm the publisher of the Orange Street News. When Hildy started her paper at the age of seven, it really did just focus on the news of her street, Orange Street. Now, four years later, the Orange Street News is a small monthly newspaper that covers the news of her whole town, Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania. Hildy is the publisher, meaning she prints and distributes the newspaper, as well as its reporter. Hildy is usually the one doing the interviews, but she agreed to let us interview her last week. How do you find the stories that you uh, report on? Well, usually, I mean, I just bike or walk around and I ask people, like, have you seen anything interesting or stuff like that? And, you know, a lot of times I'll get a tip, like, someone will tell me something from that. But um, other times, if I can't find anything that way, then sometimes people email me tips. But usually walking around and asking people questions works. Once I get the tip, I'll usually do like an interview. So I'll just ask them like five questions like, 
um, basically the who, what, where, why, um, like that, those types of questions, just to figure out like maybe like what happened. And after that, I'll just walk home and I'll, or I'll walk to a cafe and I'll sit down and I'll just like write out the story. Do you interview more than one person for a story? Sometimes, you know, um, most times it's more than one person, but sometimes it will be that one person has all of the information I need to know. But usually it'll be like a few people. So what makes a good story? Like, what do you look for in the stories that you choose to include in the paper? Um, mainly, uh, I like to report on like crime or or mysteries because, well, like in a crime story, it's basically like a puzzle and you're putting all like the pieces to it together. And that's just so much fun for me. So what would you say is the difference between like a news report and like gossip around the neighborhood? Like what is the difference? A news report is um, like it's more it's a lot more factual as gossip is something that's being made just like um, spread around by people talking to each other. And what is your favorite story you've reported on? I got a tip that someone someone's house was almost robbed in Sealand's Grove. So, and I heard it was on my block. So I walked around and I knocked on every door in my block until someone was like, oh yeah, I know which house that is. So I went to the ha- that house and they basically said that they were almost robbed and that someone had broken in, but the dog um, had scared the intruder away. And why is that your favorite story? Well, it was like, it was my first real, like almost like crime story. So, and also it was a really hard to get story. Like I, it, t- it took a while to do and it, it was a lot of hard work, but it, it made me feel so accomplished when I finished. It, it was really cool. What is your favorite part of reporting? Well, my favorite part is like, um, I love interviews. When I'm interviewing people, like some people, it's the, for some people it's the writing that they like the most, but for me, I love interviewing people. It's so much fun. And what's your least favorite part? Um, I don't know. That's a hard one. I don't think I have one. (laughs) That's awesome. In addition to writing news stories, Hildy also has written a book series called Hildy Cracks the Case. There are five books right now and a sixth one on the way. She uses real-life stories she's reported on as inspiration for the series of fiction. Hildy is driven to find out about the stories that are important to the small community where she lives. But what's it like to report on national or international stories? To find out, we have David Farenthold here. He's been a reporter at the Washington Post since 2000. Welcome, David. Thank you. So, David, after hearing how Hildy reports stories, what similarities do you see in her work to the work that you do as a reporter? A lot of similarities. Um, the, the the most important thing she talked about is sort of the separating uh, news from gossip. Uh, she talked about how you you know you can hear something from somebody, but if they didn't hear it directly from the source, if they don't have direct knowledge of what happened, um, that's that conversation is just the starting point. You don't really have your story yet. You know where you might go look for a story. So a lot of our job is trying to f- is hearing things that other people have heard that may or may not be true, and then trying to figure out a, figure out a way to prove them, to figure out what's actually true, and going looking for either people who have direct knowledge of what happened, or try to find something like a government document or some other sort of like physical proof uh, that the story is true. 
that's one thing. The other thing is the way she, the process she described, knocking on a lot of doors, talking to a lot of people, uh, working really hard just to get one story. I and mean, that's, that's the life of a reporter, whether you're rep- reporting on crime stories or you're reporting on politics. What does it mean to be objective? Objective to me means that you don't go into a story knowing what you want the story to say at the end, right? You don't have an outcome or a, a bias in the story before you even start. Objective to me means you come in and you do all the reporting you can, and then you look at the facts and let the facts tell the story. You stick to the facts, you follow the facts, and you don't let your what you want the story to be influence uh, what the story actually is. So what sorts of eth- ethical standards do uh, reporters use it in their jobs? One would be um, the ethics we have to the readers, you know, and, and so part of that is, you know, what do we owe to readers? We owe readers to be objective, uh, and we also owe to the readers that we're going to be truthful, that we've made every effort to figure out if what, we've, what we're reporting is true, and we've chased every lead that shows us the reporting is true or also, and also leads that point in the other direction. There's another set of ethics that uh, governs how we deal with the people who are mentioned in our stories, the people we write about, uh, and so that means... Uh, some really basic things, like if you're going to write about somebody, you always give them a chance to tell their story. You know, even uh, I write a lot about uh, folks that never call me back, never respond to my questions, but every time you have to give them the chance. If they're gonna, you're going to write a story about them, you have to give them the chance to speak for themselves and tell their side of the story. So there's a lot of work going into to make sure everything is fair. <laughs> Absolutely. That makes reporting really hard sometimes, trying to think about every angle in a story, everybody in the, in the story. Have I treated this person fairly? Have I accurately portrayed what they said and what they think? Um, but that's the only way to do it. You know, you realize when you, a story that I write, once it goes up online, once it come out to, comes out in the paper, if it mentions somebody in there, that's, that's with them for life. You know, they, they'll, they're affected by it when it comes out, and they're affected by it 20 years later when somebody Googles it. So you have a responsibility to make sure that if, if you have that kind of influence on people's lives, that you're, that you're being fair and being accurate. What do you enjoy most about your job? The thing I enjoy most about my job is it's actually the same thing that Hildy mentions, uh, solving mysteries. I, I really enjoy the challenge of, uh, you know, trying to set out on a story to understand something that's mysterious but important and looking for all the different ways into that story, all the ways to find out this thing that somebody's trying to keep hidden. So I love to read the news and have been reading it since I was younger. Do you think it's important for young people to read the news? Absolutely. I mean, that's I grew up reading the news um reading my hometown newspaper. And, and I like the feeling of just being somebody who was well-informed, somebody who knew what was going on in the world. Uh, just to pick one example of something that's been in the news this week, this uh, new report about climate change and the, the change it's going to make to the world in the next 20 or 30 years. You know, young people, that's the world you're going to live in. I think that, that fact, the fight against climate change, will be as important to your life as sort of the rise of the Internet has been to mine. Uh, and I think if you don't read that, you know, it's, you know, the news is going to happen to you one way or the other. And if you read the news, you'll understand what's coming and maybe take a role in preventing it. Well, thanks for being here today, David. Thank you. Okay, the time has come to unmask that mystery sound. Let's hear it one more time. Okay, Katie, any new guesses? Nope, I still think it's a printer. Okay, well, here is the answer. 
Hi, I'm Sarah Quimby, and I'm the head of the reference department at the Minnesota Historical Society Library. That was a microfilm reader, so we use that to look at microfilm. Have you ever seen one of those before, Katie? Nope, I have no idea what that is. (laughs) That's a hard mystery sound. So those you can find at libraries. And basically you get a cartridge that has very small film on it. You put it in this reader and it shows up on a screen in front of you. And you can kind of zoom through the film to find old newspapers or old documents or things like that. Wow, that's super interesting. Yeah, so if you ever need to dig up old information from an old newspaper, sometimes the only place you can find it is on these microfilm cartridges. You can fit a lot of information on one small reel, like a thousand pages of a newspaper or a thousand pages of letters onto a tiny reel that weighs an ounce or more. And um, during wars, before there were computers, people would actually microfilm letters or orders and have a pigeon carry them across a battlefield. So you can drive a pigeon 10 miles, 20 miles, and they will fly back home. But pigeons weren't the only way folks used to get information before the internet. They'd go to libraries. If people had a question, they would go to the human version of Google, reference librarians. A couple years ago, the New York Public Library started sharing records of questions posed to librarians by visitors in the pre-internet days. That would be the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And being excellent catalogers of information, the librarians wrote them all down. People called looking for the poem on the Statue of Liberty, a school for auctioneers, and the eye color of the silver fox. People wanted to know how to put up wallpaper, what the life cycle of an eyebrow hair was, and whether or not a poisonous snake would die if it bit itself. Those are really good questions, by the way. Sarah says to this day, libraries are still full of useful information you just won't find online like very old materials that have never been digitized. And here at the Minnesota Historical Society Library, we have things like diaries that people have written in the 1900s, 1800s. We have letters. Uh, We have state government records. So if you're on a fact-finding mission, try hitting up your local library. And in our next episode, we're going to be back with lots of tips for you to make sure that the information that you're looking at is factual and not false. Newspapers have not always been a reliable source of information. But in the early 1900s, journalists came together to make sure this powerful tool, journalism, was driven by objectivity and a set of ethical standards. A reporter needs to talk to lots of people, gather information from documents, and verify their reporting before even publishing it. And they need to be driven by curiosity and a desire to find the facts. That's it for this episode of Brains On. Brains On is produced by Sandin Totten, Molly Bloom, and Mark Sanchez. We had production help from Ned Lieberg-Stryker, Otis Gray, and B.D. Zhang. We had engineering help from Julia Ferdino, Randy Johnson, and Michael DeMarc. Many thanks to Megan Reddy, Paul Tosto, Julia Franz, John Wanamaker, Sarah Meyer, Elissa Dudley, Andrew Walsh, Phil Picardi, Bill Catlin, and Matt Leshack. And Brains On is supported in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. If you have a question, idea, or mystery sound to share with us, you can head to brainson.org slash contact. And you can keep up with us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at brains underscore on. Did you know we've made more than 100 episodes of the show? Well, you can find all of them at brainson.org. Now, before we go, it's time for a moment of um. 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 Hi, my name is Julia. I am six years old. I am from Atlanta, Georgia. And my question is, how come we have 
a tailbone but no tail. Would you actually be surprised to find out that we do have a tail? We actually have one before we're born, in our fifth through eighth week of life, while we're growing in our mother's bodies. My name is Betsy Abrams Rich. I'm a biological anthropologist. Anthropologists study what it means to be human, and biological anthropologists focus on the biological piece of that puzzle, investigating questions like why our bodies work and look the way they do. By the time we're actually born, our tails disappeared, but what we have instead is a tailbone. The technical term for our tailbone is a coccyx. Some people think of our tailbone as a vestigial tail. A vestigial structure is a remnant of something that once functioned. We're part of a larger group of animals called primates. And these original primates had tails. We lost tails around 20 million years ago when we see the first apes. Humans are closely related to apes. The important question is not why do humans not have tails, it's actually why do apes not have tails. Scientists don't know why apes don't have tails. We may be able to look at the function of tails, though, to think about why apes don't have tails. When you look at animals with tails, they might use their tail for balance, for signaling, for grasping things. But if you're walking on two legs, a tail will get in the way. If we imagine a scenario in which animals with either shorter tails every generation or who lost their tails completely were able to move through the forest faster or escape from predators faster, you can see how you would end up with apes not having tails. I'm standing upright and ready to read this wonderful list of names. It's time for the Brain's Honor Roll. These are the creative and inspiring listeners who keep this show going with their ideas and energy. Bubba from Phoenix, Evelyn from Litchfield, New Hampshire, Claire and Emily from Los Angeles, Owen from Cambridge, Massachusetts, Clara from Quartz Hill, California, James and Grace from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Zaylin from Berwyn, Illinois, Eric from Loveland, Ohio, Logan from Pittsburgh, New York, Paige and Tommy from Toledo, Ohio, Esther from Guadalajara, Mexico, Will from South St. Paul, Minnesota, Oyuna from Damascus, Maryland, Annika from Fremont, California, Aubrey from Salt Lake City, Masiha from Sydney, Australia, Violet from Madison, Wisconsin, Ayal from Pittsburgh, Lizzie from Jeju-do, South Korea, Jean and Charlie from Helena, Montana, Morgan from Big Pine, California, Giles and Kingsley from Los Angeles, William from Burlington, Wisconsin, Claire from Redwood City, California, Layla from Sydney, Australia, Seth from Seattle, Samuel from Los Angeles, Ewan from Asheville, North Carolina, Madison from Manassas, Virginia, Emily from Glen Ellen, Illinois, Kaylee and Ben from Queen Bee in Australia, Sasha from London, England, Thomas, Lydia and Marcus from Marquette, Michigan, Jack from Shawnee, Kansas, Hannah and Joseph from Port St. Lucie, Florida, James from Laverne, Tennessee, Catherine from Marshfield, Massachusetts, Adrian from Lake Stevens, Washington, Ellie from Huntington, Indiana, Francis and Ruby from Salem, Oregon, Elliot from Palo Alto, California, Eliana from Henderson, Nevada, and Vance from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That's it for this deep dive into the world of news. Next time, tips for finding your own facts. See you then. And thanks for listening.